Today's episode is brought to you by Gary Barwin's Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted, The Ballad of Model the Cowboy, published by Random House. Wild, witty, and profoundly moving, Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted is a Jewish Western set in Lithuania just as the Nazis invade. It draws on Hitler's incongruous fascination with Native Americans and the Westerns of Karl May to explore the historical connection between the Holocaust and indigenous genocide, colonialism, and intergenerational trauma, storytelling, and masculinity. Publishers Weekly wrote, This inventive madcap novel is a stunning testament to Jewish humor and survival. And the Toronto Star notes that there are few voices in Canadian writing as original as Barwin's. Jan Martel described it as a fierce and funny horse ride through hell, told with brio. The Globe and Mail says, This is a novel steeped in history and truths, managing to be darkly funny and packed with wisdom. And finally, Quill Inquire adds, This wildly inventive novel plays by its own rules. In Barwin's world, imagination is freedom and comedy, courage. Gary Barwin's award-winning last novel, Yiddish for Pirates, was a Canadian bestseller, and Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted, The Ballad of Model the Cowboy, is available now wherever books are sold. Today's episode is also brought to you by Jamie Ringleb's So Tall It Ends in Heaven, a debut collection of poems that explores sexuality, estrangement, and the distances we travel for love. Says Kava Akbar, Ringleb possesses that rarest triumvirate fluency of ear, heart, and mind that you find in the great poets of any era, any place. One poem here ends, We sleep in a snarl like lovers found in snow. Another, It's almost a heaven neglecting you. It's thrilling to discover a book you know you'll revisit for the rest of your life adds Carl Phillips. Ringleb's poems at once confront and enact how the hurt that haunts us has everything to do with how we grow up to love, if we can at all, someone else, brokenly, tentatively, and as if our lives depended on it, as I believe they do. These poems convince me of that. This is a hard-won, triumphant debut. So Tall It Ends in Heaven is out on September 20th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I'm excited for this conversation with poet Claire Schwartz because for a long time now, long before I knew her poetry, I knew Claire as one of my go-to poetry curators and champions of poets. Watching the way she helms the poetry section at Jewish Currents, the way she did her poetry column at the Paris Review, the many poets she has interviewed, and most importantly, the manner in which she does it all, the politics and poetics behind the choices she makes and the questions she asks have long been an inspiration to me. One of the many things her debut collection, Civil Service, interrogates beyond notions of civility and service is the notion of the individual I in relation to a you, to an other, to the collective. The first poem of this book opens with the lines, The original gesture 
the umbilical cord, I, two bodies connected. And later the lines, I records my absence in you. I records you. Every time I write I, I am trying to get back to you. I think of this destabilization of the lyric I, this redefining of the I in a relational way of how the self perhaps can only be understood in a relation, in an interdependent way. I think of this when I think of the magazine Jewish Currents as well, where under Claire's curation of its poetry, you, you are as likely to find the work of Phil Metris, Evie Shockley or Carl Phillips, Kathy Park Hong, Fargo Tabaki, or Adonia Shibley, as you are the work of Ilya Kaminsky, Gloria Gervitz, Nellie Sachs, or Israel Emio. This is also true about their long-form journalism. This engagement with identity, the identity of selves, but also the identity of a people, in a way that is porous to and in deep engagement with otherness, with the world. Before the pandemic, I only subscribed to two magazines. One, because I'm a film nerd, is Film Comment, put out by the Lincoln Center, which I absolutely love, but which has stopped issuing print editions since COVID. The other is Jewish Currents, which partially explains why it comes up sometimes on the show. For instance, in my conversation with Viet Thanh Nguyen, as we unpack the radical history of the word Asian American, and yet also the ways it has since become an umbrella term that can sometimes advance a regressive representational politics, one that erases many Asian American demographics and their narratives in the process. And most recently, it came up with Daniel Mendelssohn, where I quote from one of the most incredible pieces of long-form journalism from the magazine, The Many Oblivions of Baba Yar by Linda Kinsler. I bring this all up mainly because of the resonances between today's guest and the magazine she is the culture editor of, but also because Jewish Currents sent some stuff to offer to new supporters to celebrate this episode. Among the many things one can choose as a new supporter of the show, one can now also choose a two-issue sampler bundle from Jewish Currents. One issue, the Soviet issue, contains the many oblivions of Baba Yar. The other contains, among many other things, the Paul Salon folio, Salon at 100, which is one of the high marks for the magazine, in my opinion with meditations on Salon from everyone from Arya Aber to translator Michael Hoffman, Fanny Howe interviewing Salon's translator Pierre Joris, and a Salon-centric poetry comic by none other than Anne Carson. Our cup is overflowing this month, however, as they also sent copies of the book that Claire Schwartz and Nathan Goldman edited called Provisions, Poems Held Close in a Time of Crisis, where they asked various writers to write about poems they were holding close during the pandemic. Writers including Hanif Abdurraqib, Kazim Ali, Wayne Kostenbaum, Laura Mimosa Montes, and Christina Sharp, among many others. So this is a great time, maybe the best time, to transform yourself from a listener to a listener-supporter because of all this alone. But Claire also contributes to the bonus audio archive a reading 
from one of her most beloved poets, who we talk a lot about today, Edmond Jabez. She talks about how in this poetry collection, she wants to preserve loss and absence in the language of her poems, and that translating Jabez helps her to do just that. Then she reads for us from Chavez in French and then in Rosemary Waldrop's English. This joins a wealth of ever-growing material in the archive, including the iconic Jen Bervin from years ago talking about why Paul Salon is so important to her aesthetics, reading some of his prose, including a letter he wrote about craft, then reading one of her favorite poems of his, and then a new poem by Jen herself written under his influence. As if that were not enough, and Daye knew it would have been enough, for one lucky new subscriber, Claire is offering a poetry consultation or discussion about writing and the writing life more broadly. This joins a similar offer by Kaba Akbar. Miracle of miracles, believe it or not, this all just scratches the surface. Check it all out and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now, finally, after this epic preamble, let's talk with today's guest, poet Claire Schwartz. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet and editor Claire Schwartz. Schwartz has a PhD in African American Studies, American Studies, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies from Yale University, and was awarded the 2019 Sylvia Arden Boone Prize for the best written work by a Yale student on African or African American art, a prize jointly administered by the History of Art and the African American Studies Departments through nominations by faculty members, and given for her doctoral dissertation, A Sidelong Glance, Art, Archives, and Visions of Blackness in the Postmodern City. She's also the culture editor for the award-winning quarterly magazine of politics, culture, and ideas, of which I am an enthusiastic subscriber, Jewish Currents where she brings poetry from such dynamic poets as Danika Kelly, the Palestinian poet and performance artist Fargo Tabaki, and the Yiddish poetry of Israel Emiot, read hauntingly by Ilya Kaminsky. She brings us to these poems, prefacing them with incredible introductory essays. 
as well as being in conversation and interviewing people for the magazine on topics from the criminalization of abortion to the collective work of abolition. She has also interviewed many poets for other publications, from the Paris Review to The Nation, from Rita Dove to Claudia Rankin to Robin Cost Lewis, written literary criticism and book reviews on the works of Ocean Vong, Ross Gay, and Kava Akbar. And with Kava and Sarah Kay wrote a column for the Paris Review from 2018 to 2020 called Poetry Rx, where people would write in about their situations, looking for poetry, a poetry prescription from either Claire, Kava, or Sarah. Claire's writing Prose and poetry has appeared in The Believer, The New Yorker, Poetry Magazine, The Los Angeles Review of Books, The Iowa Review, and many other places, and has garnered her a pushcart prize. Her limited edition chapbook, Bound, was a winner of the 2016 Button Poetry Prize, selected by Aziza Barnes, and of which Kava Akbar says, The language here is staggering. The formal ambition and virtuosity, obvious, even at a glance. But what sets Claire Schwartz's poems apart is their monumental compassion, dealing with subjects, homelands, genealogies, taxonomies, and the violent histories and presence inherent to each, which in their infinite complexity defy all but the most earnest and searching poets. Schwartz writes, I have a truth and a family, which do I serve? It's this sort of questioning, this sort of fearless interrogation of inheritance that elevates Bound to a higher plane of art. Claire Schwartz is also the winner in poetry of the 2022 Whiting Award. And in their citation, they speak about Claire's first full-length collection, Civil Service, just out from Grey Wolf, and of which we're talking about today. And they say, The poem A Geography writes Claire Schwartz in her structurally risky and resonant first book. We do not so much read this collection as walk through it, live in it. The thinking, like the language, is rigorous and urgent. Here is a writer who's unafraid to use the fullest range of her poetic voice. She is probing, lucid, and aphoristic, and also poignantly humane. These poem stories are often closer to nightmare than fairy tale, but also anchored to the world we live in, an astonishingly achieved debut. Kinesia Lubrin adds, Claire Schwartz reveals the potent work of language that distills the clutter of the world's corrupt orders into an urgent wisdom. Here is a poet of astonishing openness who flees no corner where power lurks unexamined. Finally, Algina Mort says, the power of this book is in its uncontrollable private will to imagine against the public failure of imagination. The poet dismembers our political reality into the double-edged lines, into the bare and ashamed symbols and silences. Brutal and coy, Claire Schwartz creates a scream out of irony and a rhythm out of the four corners of the page. Welcome to Between the Covers, Claire Schwartz. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. When we open civil service, the first thing we encounter are two brief epigraphs, one from Edmond Chabès and the other from Dion Brand. 
And knowing your work in the poetry and political worlds for some time, I suspect that they aren't here only because of these specific words that you've chosen, that these two writers who are also important writers to me feel to me like they represent two vital aspects of you and your presence in the world. Um, I think people can see both of these threads in the, in the introduction I've just read and some of the animating questions and concerns that they each have politically, epistemologically, formally, imaginatively. I think we can follow currents of thought between them and you in this collection. So if, if I'm not overstating this connection, that really it is deeper than loving an epigraph by each of them. I was hoping you could talk to us about these two writer philosophers, these people who you choose to place before your own words as we begin to read. Thank you so much for that. And that feels very resonant that it's beyond the content of these lines and toward the figures of these writers as they live in the world. Um, you know, Dion Brand talks about the possibilities of creating a language where, or creating a grammar where Black life is the thought and not the unthought. And to me, in that I hear the possibilities of language to structure our imaginings, which have everything to do with how we relate to each other and the world, to think about anti-Blackness and anti-indigeneity as structuring conditions of the world we live in that need to be contended with, that our language shores up or departs from whether we want it to or not. Um, and to hold that really consciously sort of at the center of my practice and to follow writers who hold that at the center of their practice. So, you know, she, she shows me that. And I also think of her as someone who, I think there can be something that feels almost frivolous about writing in the context of everything that we're facing in the world. And to have someone like Dion Brand who goes out into the world, who's a, an activist in her own right, and also says that the work on the page is important life work, to insist on that is really something that I try to hold to because I think if we don't take it that seriously, it's not worth doing at all. So I wanted to kind of put her words first. Um, and then, Admoja this is kind of, I don't know, the, the greatest poet of my heart, I would say. I, I think about him a lot with the poet Paul Salon. Um, and I think I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but Rosemary Waldrop in her really wonderful book, Lavish Absence, talks about, you know, kind of half expecting to meet someone who's, you know, turned away from the world in some ways or who's been harmed by it and doesn't feel like he has a full living. And what she counters is just this you know, person who entertains his grandkids, who takes long walks, who, you know, is so fully alive in the world. And I think to think about writing as something that makes place for our living in a really immediate way um, is something that I, I really take from his work. You know, he talks about each of his books as, you know, that he's just writing one book throughout his life and that each of the books is kind of an attempt at beginning that one long book. And I, I really, I think just the sense of writing and living as so deeply intertwined that they can't really be pulled apart. But um, those are something that both of those writers really show to me. And I, I wanted to mark that the boundaries of the book are porous. 
One thing that leaps out to a reader of civil service is that we are reading poems populated by characters, much like what you might expect to encounter in a story or fable, characters who are nameless, or more accurately, whose names are their functions. Characters like the curator, the archivist, the censor, the stenographer, the dictator, the old dictator. And these figures appear throughout the book in this way. Um, we see this use of figures a little bit in Dion Brand, I think perhaps most notably with the blue clerk and the conversations that happen between the clerk and the author. But I'm most reminded of Emon Jabez, the invented rabbis and sages that appear throughout his work, figures that aren't really meant to be known as people, that aren't given a sense of depth, which again makes me also think of fable and fairy tale a little bit, and even of Kafka and his characters. Um, I wondered if you could talk about both why you wanted to populate your collection with figures and why figures like this, figures that seem to serve as almost placeholders within language, not for people, but functions that people might find themselves in. I've been a little bit using the language of characters and figures interchangeably, but I think I really want to, I really do think of them as figures. I really think of them as configurations of social thought and of the work that we do to be together. And I talked about this a little bit in the conversation with Nathan and Chance, but it's not so much that I see their names as the curator or the dictator. It's really that I see those as kind of proper noun place names, that those are really coordinates of power and coordinates of upholding the social, really. And it felt important to me. I mean, we can talk more about questions of interiority because I think I think those are kind of questions that I'm turning over and that I have sort of unfinished, unfinished, un, unsettled relation, unsettled relationships to. But it felt important to me that these are not locatable characters in the sense of if this particular dictator got up and walked away, that that position would no longer be available to be inhabited. That this is something, these are positions that we actually can all move into, move through in various ways or choose to make socially unavailable. I, I was hoping we could hear one of the early short poems in the collection, Perennial, both so people can hear an example of this and also as an entryway into some more questions for you. Perennial. The archivist walks out of the book and into evening early. On his street, the houses line up like good teeth. The archivist's neighbor misses his wife. 30 years ago, she quit the house and the twilight swallowed her. Still searching, the neighbor opens the belly of the neighborhood cat. The archivist, mind fast to his research, passes the plundered animal by. Books clutter his seeing, the knife a better eye. The flowers are screaming the old scream. The archivist opens his mouth to join them. The scream clarifies an elsewhere. He saw the flowers there. The tulips were red. This feels like a good example of a quality that runs throughout the book. 
of naming on the one hand, not just the archivist named by his function, but everything else that is named is done vaguely and abstracted from context or specificity. The neighbor misses his wife, neither of which become more than that. The street, the houses, and the neighborhood from a place that could be any place or no place. The neighborhood cat, we don't get any details, what type of cat, what color. Nothing gets specified until the very last line when we get not just flowers, but a specific type of flower and not just a specific type of flower, but its color. Um, until then, it almost feels like it's enacting the failure of naming, which might be, by extension, the failure of seeing. Um, the archivist, his mind is fast to his research, passes the plundered animal by, books clutter his seeing, as if he can't see past his function as the archivist. Um, but thinking about this unseen eviscerated cat reminded me of an essay of yours called To Know by Heart, Workshop Whiteness and the Rigorous Imagination of I, which is about a poetry class you took with Elizabeth Alexander, where you were asked to memorize a poem and recite it by heart in the class. And at one point you write this. In college, I heard Lyra Van Cleef Stefanen read, and during the Q&A, a question I no longer remember prompted this answer, quote, I was in the car, and in front of me was a truck with dead animals. I closed my eyes, but then I thought, I'm a poet. I have to look. I opened my eyes, unquote. And then you continue by saying, I am in this class because I want to be a poet. I want to bring that act of difficult looking into the task of learning a poem by heart. It's, it's hard for me to believe that this truck of dead animals and the dead cat in this poem are unrelated, but even if they are, it seems like this essay and this poem of yours are both related to what you call difficult looking, or as the poem says, the knife, a better eye. And I wondered what this brings up for you around looking and naming as a function of, of, of looking or not looking. It's interesting to think back to that essay because I feel like my relationship to that question has really changed. And I think in a lot of ways, my faith that looking or seeing or witnessing has any kind of direct relationship to care is not is no longer clear to me in a way that I think it felt clear to me at that moment. This is really something I think I learned from both from black studies, but also, you know, from starting to think about these questions in light of the murder of Trayvon Martin in light of just these kinds of loops of black death playing, um, thinking, you know, taking seriously that this is a country that, circulated lynching postcards that the imperial violence as it takes shape is readily available. And if evidence was what we needed to move toward a constitution of a different kind of we, we've had it already. 
And so I think in so many ways, I've started to think about the spectacle really as something that's a lot more dangerous that, you know, Miriam Kaba talks about for, for the spectacle, for the spectacle to kind of be the threshold of the unfair or what we deem unacceptable means that the ordinary is acceptable. That in fact, where we need to attend is actually the very fabric, the very root of our lives as we know it. It's not, it's not actually the spectacular thing. And we don't really use the language of witnessing or of watching to think about the ordinary in that way. And I, and I think what poetry helps me to do is to kind of recalibrate and to say, in fact, there's nothing for granted about the very material of our lives, language, you know, even that can be turned over and made into a different kind of space, um, made into a different possibility of relation, that that those, that the textures of an otherwise exist within the now. And so I think the question of spectacle is one that I was wanting to hold at bay in certain ways in this collection that I, that I really wanted to think about how, how do you make the ordinary as terrifying as it is? Mm. You know, the people who are kind of pulling the levers of power. Yes, there's the dictator, but there's also the intern, you know, there's also the curator and without all of these configurations, the dictator wouldn't exist. Well, I might be reading too much into this poem or too much into a connection between this poem and the essay. So indulge me for another minute and push back if I am. But but when I think of the James Baldwin epigraph to the essay, one that goes, it has always been much easier because it has always seemed much safer to give a name to the evil without than to locate the terror within that feels like a good description of the neighbor in this poem who in searching for his wife who years ago quote unquote quit the house who leaves this neat delimited life of the neighborhood he doesn't locate the terror within of whatever he's feeling and instead in in his search for the evil without he creates more evil disemboweling the cat the same cat that the archivist won't or can't see but when the archivist lets the scream of the flowers in, he brings the scream of an other inside him and joins them in this noise that's outside of language and then also outside of naming. It is then that the eyes of the poem finally is able to see the flowers as more than something general, as tulips, as red, as red tulips. And I'd love to hear if this feels at all aligned with how you conceive of this poem, but even if it isn't, I wanted to stay with it in regards to the essay for another moment, because where like the archivist bringing the scream of the flower inside, you're asked to bring a poem into your body to memorize it, to carry it in you and then share it. And I really love what you do in sharing your deliberation around that. So at first you think of a poem by Gerald Stern called Behaving Like a Jew because it has animal carnage in it, for one, an encounter, an encounter with a dead opossum by the side of a busy road. 
At one point, the poem says, It took me only a few seconds just seeing him there with the hole in his back and the wind blowing through his hair to get back again into my animal sorrow. And then later, I am sick of the spirit of Lindbergh over everything. That joy in death, that philosophical understanding of carnage, that concentration of the species. I'm going to be unappeased at the opossum's death. I'm going to behave like a Jew and touch his face and stare into his eyes and pull him off the road. I am not going to stand in a wet ditch with the Toyotas and the Chevys passing over me at 60 miles an hour and praise the beauty and balance. I, I love this poem, and you seem to also, but you feel like it leaves you intact. It comforts you in the notion that the challenge is to be who you already are, a Jew, and that you ultimately want to bring a poem inside you that sits more uneasily there, perhaps like the archivist and this, the flower screams um, that make the archivist more than the archivist. Um, and you choose a poem by the poet, perhaps best known for writing persona poems herself, uh, the poet I. Um, and I wanted, I was hoping you would talk to us about this impulse, if it still feels relevant to you in this conversation, to bring in the other in this exercise, and then ultimately why this other, this poet, and, and the specific poem by this poet. One kind of kinship that I'm thinking about between perennial and something that I's work teaches me is the possibility of relation across such difference that there's almost no common language. Like the possibility of taking a flower into one's perception of the world the possibility of, you know, I writing in the voice of J. Edgar Hoover, or, you know, that it's not, it's not a kind of closeness of affiliation exactly. It's in some ways a closeness of disaffiliation. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it in these terms before, but I think there is almost an awareness that this is actually the precondition to being in the world, that it's not the creation of a shared space it's actually just naming the space that already exists and what are the sort of barriers that we put in place to imagining ourselves as so discrete from other beings that we have no no shared language between us and and what does it kind of look like to think about these more unlikely kinships what's the language that kind of emerges from those affiliations and how else might that reposition us to re-enter the world? Could, could we hear perennial one more time? Yeah, totally. Perennial. The archivist walks out of the book and into evening early. On his street, the houses line up like good teeth. The archivist's neighbor misses his wife 30 years ago, she quit the house and the twilight swallowed her. Still searching, the neighbor opens the belly of the neighborhood cat. The archivist, mind fast to his research, passes the plundered animal by. Books clutter his seeing, the knife a better eye. 
The flowers are screaming the old scream. The archivist opens his mouth to join them. The scream clarifies and elsewhere. He saw the flowers there. The tulips were red. I'm listening to Claire Schwartz read from her debut poetry collection, Civil Service. So when I think of I and I think of Dion Brand and Emil Chavez, each of their identities and or biographies and also their poetics, they, they trouble notions of the self versus the other, but also the self in relation to nation. Um, Chavez, an Egyptian Jew expelled from his home for being Jewish and living in exile in France. Brand, a, a queer black poet from Trinidad living in Toronto, who refuses country, um, who refuses a land to light on when she says in one poem, I don't want no fucking country here or there and all the way back. I don't like it. None of it easy as that. And of I's poems who herself had Japanese, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Black, Irish, Southern, Cheyenne, and Comanche heritage, and whose poems, as you mentioned, assume all these wildly different points of view, including J. Edgar Hoover, but also a 14-year-old boy who murders his parents. Um, And you write that she's a poet for whom boundaries of the nation, the home, the body, are viable and violated. Her speaker's acts are intimate and violent, gorgeous and brutal, deep-seated human contradiction cast in unblinking language. Finally, I'm thinking also of an exchange you had recently with the poet Denez Smith on Twitter where they say about your collection, I was reminded of the prophet in two ways. One, the naming that built a world. And two, more importantly, I think if one keeps reading this book, you become a better person, poet, and citizen. And you respond, Denez May each poem move against citizenship. And they ask, what's the word for the kind of belonging your book calls for? And you say, love, I hope, thinking of bell hooks and also of Solmaz. So this is my long way to ask you to talk about the title, Civil Service, in light of the project as a whole, and in relation to your thoughts on nations and citizens, perhaps in particular, Because most of the figures, not all of them, but most of the figures in your book are civil servants or government administrators in some sense, I think. I mean, again, I think it gets back to the question of the spectacular. You know, it's easy to locate the violence of nationalism. Well, let me just say, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about the kind of fetishization of the state as something that's shared between fascists and leftists, you know, that there's a way to really think about the state as something outside of us that acts on the rest of us for which we have, you know, it's a way of kind of giving up power in relation to the possibilities of change. And so I think part of the project of this book is really to think about what do we mean when we talk about the state? What's the kind of lived texture of state violence? Um, And to say that that doesn't always look like murder. You know, sometimes it looks like a board meeting. To think about really to take seriously, what do we need to turn away from in order 
to think that that's innocuous or in order to allow our lives to be made up by these configurations that may feel comfortable enough from with inside of them for those of us who are closer to pulling the levers of power than on the receiving end. Um, I think a lot about in, in his book, Freedom Time, Anthony Reid talks about refusing to concede the definition of freedom to nationalists, to fascists, you know, that this is really a word that's worth fighting for. There's no other word that can mean what freedom means. And I, I feel that way about love. To me, love feels like a word worth fighting for and worth trying to inhabit and trying to agitate sufficiently to shake it free, at least for a brief time, or at least enough to allow us to inhabit it, to turn toward each other differently, to recognize these unacceptable configurations as unacceptable, and to orient or to suture us to a kind of other social arrangement. So to me, love and civility are incompatible. Civility is the kind of comfortable assimilation into the forms the state dictates. You know, June Jordan talks about, I'm going to misquote, but but something like, um, in conditions of tragedy, polite behavior is a form of denial, you know, that actually what the world demands of us is something profoundly uncivil, that we can't kind of keep going on and reconciling ourselves to these forms, that that's actually a brutal accommodation. One thing I think of also around this question of civility, it reminds me of you talking about the circumstances under which you began writing this collection. Um, You've talked about how Yale has a profoundly extractive relationship to its surrounding communities, and yet they would provide the quote unquote, civil service of sending emails to you and other students when someone had been mugged on campus. And I was wondering if you could speak into this, both the extractive relationship and what you mean by the way the university renders structures of violence as humane, as if in service of some greater good. I think if you visit New Haven, you can can see exactly what it means, that there's a kind of cordoned off, deeply luxurious, lush campus and a profoundly under-resourced community because of the ways that the campus and the university have extracted resources in the form of not paying taxes, in the form of who they hire, who they exclude. Then this starts to authorize all kinds of policing, um, you know, that we get, we got these emails, which do produce a lot of fear. You know, it's also about the kind of affective dimension of keeping us tethered to these forms. They produce a lot of fear. There's no language to think about the fear that the university produces for the surrounding communities or the kind of intergenerational theft that these forms have authorized. And then at the same time, we're constantly told that the study that we're doing within the university somehow justifies the maintenance of these forms, that this is ultimately a good thing. You know, it's a pretty direct enlightenment descendant of an idea that there's a, that there's a kind of life of the mind that justifies 
the arrangements of the world around its maintenance. Um, at the same time, I was, I think, reading uh, Ian Balkum's Spectres of the Atlantic, where he talks about Zong, um, the Zong massacre that I think probably a lot of people have come to through M. Norbese Phillips' work. And, you know, the mass killing of more than 130 African enslaved people by the British, um, by the crew of the British slave ship, the Zong, um, when they were thrown overboard to kind of collect insurance money. And Bauckham really talks about what he calls the minutia of imperial management. And I, I think he says something like the, the Lord commissioners do not emerge from these records as the architects of history, but as its petty clerks accountants and small claims adjusters, you know, so, so to really kind of go into the archive and think about violence that we can recognize as tremendous violence and to think about what are the kind of, what are the kind of calculations, but also who is, who is actually responsible, who are the accountants sort of doing this, carrying out this work of calculation that authorizes the substitution of a body for a sum of money you know what does that actually what does that actually mean for the way that we're set up well you also talk about how at this time in your life as you were starting this writing this book you were expected to do a certain type of performance of mastery in your oral exams a performance of knowing and that your poems became for you a record of your discomfort with this and i was i was hoping you could speak more about how your poems become sort of a counter move against this performance? So the third year of, of the PhD, we had these oral exams and the project is that you have these kinds of fields that you wanna become proficient over. And you have to compile these reading lists that are somehow supposed to speak to the shape of the field without having read them. So already it's sort of a, a strange exercise that asks you to chart a perimeter of something that you've never moved through. So there's already this kind of discomfort or disjuncture between what it means to find something from the inside, you know, to wander around something and to get the texture of it and to find the connections and the citational practices that are actually building out this constellation of thought but that's, that's not what you're asked to do. You're asked to kind of, yeah, you're asked to chart the perimeter from the outside. There's an uncomfortable relationship between what you know, a kind of growing awareness of what you know you don't know and having to bridge that gap by performing knowing. You know, this is really directly what we were told is if you don't know the answer to a question answer an adjacent question that you do know. There, there's no kind of language to think about the shape of what you don't know or why that shape might not just be a failure of your own reading, but maybe an archival absence. Yeah. Or to think about what does it mean to be alongside something that you don't know and maybe that you can't know or that a particular register of knowledge isn't available to you. And I think poetry is a place where I can build out my own questions without having to resolve them into an answer very directly. Because if I knew what I wanted to say in a poem, I would never begin it. Then it might be an essay, although even then I don't write that way. Um, but to be able to allow 
language and all of its various textures, the thought to move up from being inside language in a way that is unfamiliar to my practices of daily living and to allow all of those other kinds of sensory registers to seep in feels like the place that I wanted to be. And it also felt like the only way to get out from the familiar forms that were structuring both the pedagogy that I was facing and also by extension, the university as a kind of space of enclosure. Well, you, you've talked about civility sort of decoupled from service. And I was wondering if we could do the reverse too and talk about service on its own. I, I won't use the word citizen by calling you a great literary citizen, though I think you are a person very beholden to the community you write within and, and help shape. I, I wondered how you would articulate this, if not literary citizenship. Do you see your art making and your embodied actions as an artist in the world as as service? Um, and what are your thoughts on that half of the of the title of the book, Service? I think I really just see myself as a reader and all of these other forms are ways of bringing readership into a social space because there's no record of my reading practice outside these written forms or outside these spoken forms. So I need to put it back into language in order to have my own reading re-enter the social space. So to me, the service and the title, it really is tethered to civility. It really is asking what kinds of forms civility is mobilized in favor of. I, I need to think more about the word service, but service, service does feel like a Christian word to me in the sense that, and, and I'm sorry if I'm misunderstanding what Christianity is, but, but it feels like a way of offering where the self is not changed in the encounter, the sense that the self gives something to the collective or to the person in need without actually reckoning with why these kinds of discrepant needs exist. Well, in the spirit of this question, we have a question from Kava Akbar for you. Claire, it's Kave. Uh, I'm so excited about this book. I think it's one of the great new books of poetry I've read in years, um, to say nothing of being one of the great first books of poetry. Um, it's absolutely bananas, and uh, I'm so excited about it. My question, uh, for years, you've sort of been moving your hands behind the curtains on behalf of poets in quiet and loud ways and public and private ways. And when I think about being a sort of joyful steward of this thing that we've all organized around and believe in so much, I think of you as one of the great sort of champions of non-you people's work, of other people's work, um, again, in loud and quiet ways and mentoring and teaching and reviewing and interviewing and editing and curating and just doing all of those sort of quiet, unsexy things that makes that make poems happen in the world, but that um, are not everybody does. And so I'm interested in 
your sense of, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe some kind of vertigo or the sort of feeling of now um, ushering your book into the world. Is that dizzying to you to sort of be stewarding your own work in the way that you have so generously stewarded other people's over these years that that shepherding, how does it feel different? Um, and how are you taking care to make sure that you're giving you're you're giving yourself all that you would give to a beloved in this position? Um, thanks. Um, thanks, Kava. It's nice to hear your voice. I think there are kind of two things that I'll say to that. The first is that it's actually way less disorienting than I'd sort of imagined it might be. But I think it's really because of what we were just talking about in the sense of, I, I really think about writing as a register of reading. And I think that, you know, Javes, who we've talked about, says maybe a bad book is just a book read badly by its author. And so I, I think of writing as the form of reading where the impact of my reading is most visible. And so to me, to having, having sat with this text as a text that I've been, I guess, writing for, you know, almost a decade, but really that I've been reading for that long or reading for, for much longer, actually, it feels kind of beautiful to be able to have I guess just to be like a a reader among readers of it actually um I've been really lucky in the conversations that I've had so far with Comrade Javadizade and Chance and Nathan and and you for people who just kind of create the conditions to be present alongside the questions that animate the text and these questions I think will persist for me forever the text is sort of just one record of them so in that way it feels it feels really nice it feels like a kind of a different kind of company and a a company that I feel really ready for and so I, I feel lucky for it I think the other thing I'll say is it is hard to talk about it's it's hard to find language to put alongside or or next to, I don't want to say around because that feels a little too overdetermining, but to move into that social space and and to kind of make these questions legible in a way that I've really been sitting privately with for so long. So I, I feel very much in the floundering part of finding language around these, but I also feel like that's kind of the most generative place from which to think. And I hope the language and the thought doesn't solidify too quickly. I liked when Kava said he was thinking of you as someone championing the not you. Um, And thinking of that, thinking of his question of you in relation to we and I in relation to you. um, I was hoping you would read the unnamed opening poem or poems for us. It's it's an electrifying opening, um, which has so much going on that I think we could talk about just these pages for a long time. Um, and we're going to talk about it, about them for a little bit. 
Could we, could we hear the first several pages? Sure. The original gesture, the umbilical cord, I, two bodies connected. I eat for you. I breathe for you. I eye for you. My language can't other than host you. Hosting is not always a posture of generosity. Sometimes it is a posture of control. I come to language having been expelled from your body. I records my absence in you. I records you. Every time I write I, I am trying to get back to you. Aren't you? Is this a town square or a cell? Difference is the meaning you make. The poem is an event. The poem takes place. That makes the poem a geography. The poem takes place in the meaning you make. The meaning you make with what you've been given. History is the compass. Difference is the poem. Let me say it differently. Don't turn away. Here, please, come in. The spine of the book is I. The book is trying to get back to you. Can you hear what is flagging in the wind? Wings, a weathered tongue. Is this a house or a cell? Who locks you in? Inside the milk carton, I, the town square, the threshold, the book, the house, the host, the cell, the hormones, the history, the geography, the poem, the meaning you make. Milk is what happens inside the body, then outside, then inside. It makes you well, it makes you sick. The cell reproduces, that is its nature. There is no such thing as a free or reduced lunch. The children are missing. Can you see their faces here? Do you consider yourself a part of or apart from? Where you are apart from, what do you cast into the distance? A poem is a line cast into the distance. Now Amira is a part of you. You are responsible for Amira. Here we are. She's in your hands now. You've been listening to Claire Schwartz read from her debut collection of poetry, Civil Service. Before we talk about Amira, who is crucial to this work, I want to unpack some of the other things you set up in these opening pages. One is this interdependence of I and you, but also the way language might be related to silence and absence. Um, those opening lines of the original gesture being the umbilical cord, an I that is two bodies connected, it makes me think of one of the two versions of the Garden of Eden story, the one where Adam and Eve are created simultaneously and the other, the one that's more often told that Adam is created first and then Eve from his rib, and then how the Midrash reconciles the contradiction. 
in the Torah by saying that Adam was created originally as hermaphrodite, equally male and female, or neither male or female, until Adam and Eve are, are cleaved from each other to become so. Immediately, I might think that the garden is the womb, the host, and an IU sort of paradise. But I feel like you trouble this when you say, my language can't other than host you. Hosting is not always a posture of generosity. Sometimes it's a posture of control. And I feel like this tension that perhaps relates to the not knowing of your poems versus the performance of mastery of your thesis, um, as these opening pages are equally full of questions, open-ended questions, like, do you consider yourself apart or apart from? But also they're full of these declarative, I would say almost coercive statements, uh, statements that speak for us, the readers. You are responsible for Amira. Does, does not feel open for discussion. Um, by the end of this opening, I'm not sure I trust the voice directing me, even as I move forward under the voice's guidance, following directions. But I also trust the voice for telling me not to trust hosting and not to trust language. So I guess I was hoping you talk more about what you're doing here, about how you want to position us to the text as readers from page one. Well, I'm really, I'm really heartened to hear that that was your response. I think this sense of consenting feels like the wrong word, but I don't know, maybe I'll say that consenting to be alongside without relinquishing thought to the sense that, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks says in, in Winnie, that amazing poem, um, I, I pass you my poem. The poem doesn't do everything for you. You are supposed to go on with your thinking. <laughs> and I, I think that's that's really the sense that I want from the beginning is this isn't this isn't a book that will do the thinking for you. This is a record of my thought that I want to put next to your active thought and to to see the meaning that comes from the intersection. So it felt important to me that as I was moving through these forms, like the form of the lecture, even though that's actually, I think, where that voice starts to come apart the most, but through these kinds of nearly allegorical, but not, not quite allegorical, and that I don't think the meaning or the moral can be cleanly extracted from them in a way that the allegory implies, um, that there was enough unsettling the reader's relationship to those forms that the thought on the part of the reader needs to remain active. In your conversation with Kamran, you, you discuss the way you undermine the stability of the lyric I, the way the I and the you are, are inseparable. And the question of who has the luxury to have a stable eye, a stable subject position, and who doesn't have that luxury. Connecting this back to Kava and this question of the individual, I won't say it in a life of service, but in a life of stewardship, as, as in, in his words, 
I feel like this ethos of the unstable eye extends to Jewish currents, your your work there, and I think the magazine as a whole, which very much troubles a stable subject position, and I think discovers Jewishness in relation and finds otherness in that identity as well. And I guess wondered if that brings up anything for you, because it feels like that project, the way you engage with that project, and this question of of who has the um, luxury of having a stable subject position are, are somehow connected. I think a lot about the kind of curatorial possibilities of that space and about the poetry in that space in particular, because it's not, it's not a poetry magazine. We publish one poem every two weeks. Um, and so I think a lot about what that can do and what it means to think about that is a Jewish space. And ultimately, what I've come to is that I understand Judaism to have given me the sense that writing and reading are world building practices. And I don't think that Judaism is the only way to get to that, but it's, it's how it's come to me. It's how it's come to me historically and intergenerationally and the particular contingencies of my own life. That's, that's the route toward it. And I think that helps me to think, you know, Paul Salon said in, in Microlist, that really amazing book of Pierre Doris's, the, pose, the Prose Fragments, my Judaism, what I, sorry, mon Judaism, ce que je reconnais encore dans le débris de mon existence, my Judaism, what I still recognize in the ruins of my existence, that it's, that, that it's this indelible, thing that actually can't be named even though it might be named Judaism but it's it's what when everything else fails still exists and I I find so much possibility in that definition because it doesn't require any defense it doesn't require a nation it doesn't require boundaries it's not something that can be taken and therefore something that needs to be policed or guarded or authorizes any of those forms. It's just the isness of my life. And so I think that permits a kind of unwieldy affiliation or a freedom of affiliation because it's, it is what I am no matter who I put myself next to. Well, thinking of this, um, what you just said about reading and writing as world building practices, you also bring this up or something perhaps related to it in your conversation with Kamran. You said that, that this project civil service is interested in collapsing the distance between writing and reading, which makes me think of the, the Jabez epigraph, the writer steps aside for the work and the work depends on the reader. Um, and perhaps related to this in your discussion of Paul Salon on, on the recent episode of Jewish Currents podcast on the nose about your collection, when you're talking about the way Salon revises his work in response to a dissatisfaction with the way it's being read and being framed, you ask, what does it mean to revise with the world's reading in mind? But I'm, cu- I'm curious to hear more about what you mean by the project, this book, um, 
is is being interested in collapsing the distance between writing and reading or how you see this project connected to that notion i think in a way it, it loops back to what we were just talking about in terms of meaning as a kind of co-creation between the writer and the reader that there's nothing that you know, if I'm the author of the text in some kind of stable sense, there's there's nothing actually that I can stabilize fully about the meaning because every time a different person picks up the book or if a person picks up the book differently throughout time, the meanings will have shifted. I mean, I think we all know that by rereading texts at different points in our lives and finding different things in them or feeling various levels of affiliation or disaffiliation with the same text at different moments as it meets us and as we're meeting the world. Um, but I also think, I guess just to be really basic, like you don't write from nowhere. Writing is the way that I have taken in the world and attempted to make something of it. It's, it's that record of my own process that passes through a kind of wordless space but then needs to be translated back into a kind of language whether written or another kind of languaging whatever it is that gets from me to the next person or to the next being um and so i think i really just see that all as as a continuous as a continuous practice and i think that is I think that's, you know, the Talmudic practice that the idea that what's come down to us really is a record of commentaries, really is a record of people reading and changing the meanings with their reading. There's nothing fixed about the original text. When we read, we pass through all of the conversations about a given text and all of the kinds of contingent relationships that that text has had to the world and to various configurations of readers. Well, one of the most powerful ways the opening of civil service functions is not something that's apparent to listeners, but the way the words are interplaying with an ever-shifting image at the top of each page, an image that starts as a line that becomes a square on the next page, then a square that partially rotates than a three-dimensional cube-like structure and then a milk carton, which also looks like a house, um, page by page by page. And I want to ask you about this in relation to architecture more broadly in this collection. Um, as, the, as the Whiting Award Committee said, the poem A Geography writes Claire Schwartz in her structurally risky and resonant first book. We do not so much read this collection as walk through it, live in it, and Valgina Mort saying, you create a rhythm out of the four corners of the page, or the Dion Brand epigraph, what is possible and where's the doorway of this room, or the line later in the collection, poetry is a door without a house. And this spatial concern predates this collection, I think, as your chapbook Bound has a poem shards with diffuse light that has the lines. Once my people ensured safety by marking our doorposts with the blood of a lamb, every year we tell the story. When I say safety, I mean we were spared. When I say we, I mean not counting the ones not spared. 
So unfairly, my question is an accordion of questions. I'm, I'm curious about the images that open the book, but even more so, I'm curious about this spatial dimension, your interest in dimensional spaces as places to be held, both in the tender meaning of held and in the carceral meaning of held. Um, and I even wonder if it connects in any way to your doctoral thesis, which is about art archives and visions of blackness, but looks at urban space as an alternative to figuration. So what's going on, Claire Schwartz? <laughs> what is going on? Um, the images, as you mentioned, begin with just a line, an eye, an umbilical cord, um, and then they accumulate to a square, to a book, to a house, but, but each, they're kind of nested images. So each form holds all of the ones before it. And it felt important to me to open the book with an encounter with a kind of graphic form that both precedes and exceeds language. I really didn't want the word to be the limit or the boundary of the ways that the reader encountered the charge to read, really. So I actually see the graphic elements of the book as having a kinship with the attention to screaming throughout the book um, with the way that some of the, the letters overlap. And there's a kind of stuttering, I think that that encourages when one goes to actually read the book out loud. Um, I never really know what to do with those or I feel aware of the fact that being, something is being lost in the translation of that form. And it felt important to me to think about how to offer the reader a sense that something is lost in the social encounter as well, and that we always need to be attentive to the fact of the lostness of something. So I think that I think the graphic felt like one way for me to make that live. Um, space, yes, good question. So I, I feel obligated to point out, you know, the obvious thing that poesis comes from the root of to build and that, you know, a stanza means a little room and that there are all kinds of spatial metaphors built into the way that we're talking about poetry at all. But um, I'm thinking of Gwendolyn Brooks's 1968 book in the Mecca, which she wrote after coming back from the 1967 Fisk Raiders Conference where Robert Hayden and Amiri Baraka had this kind of standoff, that's a little bit too strong, but had this conversation about, you know, is, is one a poet who is Black or a Black poet? And what does that kind of mean? And Brooks, you know, who was already this lauded poet, had, had already won a Pulitzer. And I think it would have been easy to continue to write in the way that she was writing, said, I have hopes for myself. And then you know, In the Mecca was the last book that she published with Harper and Rowe, the white publisher, before moving to Dudley Randall's Broadside Press. And she really made some material and artistic shifts in reorienting toward Black communities. Um, and so In the Mecca is, is this book that reimagines the relationship to the Mecca apartments, and which had been demolished 14 years earlier. And I, I think about 
I think about the possibilities of poetry to offer a kind of I want to say counterfactual, but that's 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 not right exactly. It's a kind of possibility of living in the afterlife of forms that have been made impossible or demolished in some literal sense in the world that we live in, but it's a way of keeping the social space of those forms alive. I think in your conversation with Salma Sharif, she talked about the poet as, as the person who accepts only the briefest awning. And, and I think that a poem, a poem can be also that sense of the briefest awning, a way of gathering and facing each other in forms that are actually difficult or entirely foreclosed by the orders of the, by the spatial orders and by the social orders, which are intimately related to the spatial orders of, of the world as it exists. I wondered about this in relation to the cover too, which is from an installation by Colombian visual artist and sculptor Doris Salcedo. On your cover, it looks like two ghostly disembodied shrouds, perhaps waiting to be inhabited or perhaps already having been so. But the installation is called Disremembered and comes from Salcedo's uh, perception that society seems unable to mourn. And while the sculptures are made out of woven silk, what we can't see on your cover is that they are also made up of nearly 12,000 needles. Uh, and the description for it says, when viewed from different angles, the details of the sculpture oscillate between visible and invisible. The glint of the nickel and the sheen of the silk appear and disappear simultaneously like a fading memory. The work thus embodies a sense of paradox, beautiful yet dangerous, it is unclear whether these sculptures, with their thousands of needles, are intended to protect or to harm. And perhaps similarly, a quote from her, when a person disappears, everything becomes impregnated with that person's presence. Every single object as well as every space becomes a reminder of absence, as if absence were more important than presence. I have no idea if any of this plays into your choice to put these shrouds on the cover. But it's interesting that they seem to bring up that same question of whether hosting is hospitality or whether hosting is an act of control um, or of tenderness or, or pain. But, but tell us your relationship to, the, to this installation. Yeah, I mean, all of that feels very live in, in my relationship. I think you know, as you said, the, this kind of ambivalence between whether or not these are garments that have been inhabited or garments that are open to be inhabited, whether they're past facing or future facing, or the kind of vexed temporality of the neither and bothness of that, which really is re remembrance, which really is grief. Um, which really is what it means to hold a kind of lost loved one or really, really any loss, I think. Um, and to understand that to carry that forward doesn't actually fit into the same form that, as you said, loss 
amplifies and knits itself into to everything really I mean especially in, in the most live stages of grief I can look out the window or hear any song and and that reminds me of of a lost loved one when I when I feel closest to that loss it really the whole world demands to be arranged around that and it also demands to rearrange the whole world in order to imagine a kind of closeness to what no longer exists in its current form um, and so this this sense of total rearrangement that has a, a really uncomfortable and almost impossible relationship to what it would mean to inhabit those forms or, or to live inside these garments. And it, it kind of keeps that question live. I think, as you said, the sculptural dimension of you have to walk around something in order to see it differently, that your perception, it won't settle. There's no single vantage point from which the total can be apprehended. And so I think that that keeps you live to the loss of what you're not seeing. And it, requ it requires a kind of social form too, because, because partialness or because ambivalence or ambiguity really always does that. It requires that we ask each other, what, what do you see from over there and, and begin to stitch something together. I love that. Well, I, I want to ask you about Amira in light of this notion of when a person disappears, everything becomes impregnated with that person's presence, because I think that is a phenomenon that you enact. Um, she has this spectral presence in this collection, but I'm going to delay it a little bit longer. I was hoping you would read a, a couple poems that could set up a question by Nathan for you. Um, could we hear... Apple's preferential treatment in graveyard shift? Yes. Um, you have some cute people for questions. This is so nice. Apples. The townspeople paste wax apples on the trees, glow shyly out their windows as the dictator struts past the monument of his father strutting past nothing at all. Yesterday, the dictator dressed the butcher's boy in the uniform of his own son. Today, at the orders of the dictator, guards shot the boy. In the town of his childhood, the curator is a tourist. He touches his mother with the language with which he does not touch his work. In the painting, bored, bored Eve chomps on an apple. In the tongue of his work, he acquires her. At the banquet, music rung from the townspeople's anguish, pigs choked with apples. The meat in the soup is human meat. The dictator's rings are made of gold, yanked from the teeth of corpses. The censor bloats with what he knows. His sons bloom in neat rows. An orchard grows inside his wife. He prunes her on Sundays. Under the earth, the butcher's boy, laughing, eats an apple. The core rises, light with rot. The dictator admires the fruit of his land. Preferential treatment. 
The censor uses the black crayon to eradicate sex. On payday, he takes his wife and son to Shake Shack. Whatever you want, the censor says to his wife when she asks what she should have. The censor crosses provide for your family off the list he keeps tucked in his billfold. To track the time, the censor sings, you are my sunshine, twice, while his son brushes his teeth. The boy shows the glass, his shining mouth stones and growls. He is a bear. No, he is a boy. In the boy's drawings, the zebras are purple and white. His mother hangs them on the fridge. What beautiful horses, the censor says. His wife's wit trembles, then ebbs. The children's nails are clogged with black wax. Graveyard shift. When the soldier went to war, he wanted to go home. He wrote a letter to his mother, which the mailman carried over the mountain into the censor's office. Dear mother, his mother read, I hope you are missing. I know, I am something beautiful, ruined, your son. Of course, she understood. The doctors concocted nostalgia. The poets drummed up modernity. The mothers went on understanding. When the soldier occupied his mother, she sang a folk song to her belly. He kicked. She called it dancing. Late one night, something was born. Listening to Claire Schwartz read from Civil Service. So this is a question from the managing editor of Jewish Currents, the writer and one of my go-to literary critics, Nathan Goldman. Hi, Claire. It has been such a pleasure to live with civil service over the past few months. Perhaps because I recently became a dad, I found myself very interested in the role that children and parenthood play in the book. In the poem Meaning Well, during a board meeting at an organization that seems to be funded with cash that is embossed with the dictator's face, we find the curator staring blankly at the toddler whose face wallpapers his phone. In preferential treatment, the censor dutifully cares for his son, taking him to Shake Shack and singing to him to time his toothbrushing, while he, the censor, uses the black crayon to eradicate sex. That poem ends with a chilling line, the children's nails are clogged with black wax. While kids are often icons of unblemished innocence and abstract hope for the future, I wondered if these tender and haunting glimpses evoke something else. They put me in mind of the way children are used as a pretext for everyday violence, and the processes by which they're assimilated into that violence and tasked with carrying it forward. How do you understand these children and the role they play in the poems? Do they have something to do with the book's vision of futurity? Aww. Um, this is so nice. Yeah, thanks, Nathan, for that question. It's really beautiful to hear from you in, in this space of new life. I, I'm thinking of a line from Salma Sharif's poem, Every Nation Hates Its Children. 
And as you said, the kind of pretext of a kind of cruel futurity that's put, you know, in the words of Lydia, you can pitch on the backs of children. You know, what, what are children asked to stand in for that really authorizes the continuation of brutalities, really, that really forecloses the possibilities of a future flourishing? I don't know. I think, I think it, it really feels related to the question of kinship that we were thinking through a little bit earlier and the ways that children become this kind of bottom line incontrovertible excuse for hoarding, for violence, for, yeah, I guess just continuing the brutalities of the present in, in the name of the defense of children, even though we know it's only a few children and the question of whether or not they even benefit from this is really up for grabs to me. Um, but then I think of someone like, June Jordan, who I turn to all the time, who insisted that taking seriously the knowledges of children, the intelligences of children as people who are estranged from these social forms, as people who can see the possibilities of an otherwise inside our now, who are just coming to language and who have a kind of tenuous relationship between language and between social forms, who recognize kinship or affiliation everywhere, um, that, that feels like such a site of profound possibility to me. And what would it mean to actually take that seriously and to kind of take that? It feels actually very related to the question of what it means to take poetry seriously. Well, Nathan mentions the poem Meaning Well, which reminded me of something you said in an interview about your chapbook in reference to a poem that is an erasure poem of one of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's speeches, where you say, I've been thinking about the phrase well-meaning, how it so often cloaks power and coats violence with something slippery. Quote, oh, you person of color shouldn't worry about when that white woman touched your hair, asked where you're really from insert white violence here, she meant well. Well-meaning strips the traction from grievances so they are difficult to address. Well-meaning is its own catch-all alibi, which somehow I also connect to another part of your essay on memorizing poems, where you say, I can't imagine my white family and friends tell each other so many times it sounds like a plea or an incantation. I just can't imagine, they say, meaning they cannot imagine how the massacre happened. How on June 17, 2015, Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old white man, entered Emanuel AME Church in Charleston and murdered Cynthia Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lance, DePayne Middleton Doctor, Clementa Pickney, Daniel Simmons, Tawanza Sanders, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Mira Thompson, nine black people who had made a space sacred and welcomed him in. We, my family and friends insist, cannot imagine. But, you continue in the essay, can you imagine hearing and not intervening in a racist joke? Can you imagine attending a university that invests in private prisons? 
Can you imagine being an American and never learning black history? Can you imagine studying the Holocaust without talking about Japanese internment? Can you imagine teaching a science class without Henrietta Lacks, without the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, without any thought at all to whose bodies have produced your knowledge? Can you imagine living on land stolen from Native peoples? Can you imagine buying something ignorant to the conditions of its production? Can you imagine crossing the street at night so as not to be within arm's length of a black man who threatens to share the sidewalk with you? No, maybe you're saying. I don't do that. But can you imagine? Um, somehow this well-meaningness or meaning well, it feels connected to me to what we're willing to see again to go back to the first poem we were talking about, Perennial. And maybe it has to do with reading, not just reading texts, but reading the world. Or, or perhaps most obviously, when you talk about the spectacular and you're wanting to talk about the terror and the ordinary. But I wondered if this brings up any thoughts for you um, around meaning well uh, in relationship to um, not specifically the poem meaning well, but to civil service and, and what you're doing? I think wellness and that configuration of meaning well feels related to civility. I'm having a very strong image of people just showing up to class and not doing the reading and talking a lot, <laughs> that there's actually a kind of space between having studied in the sense of how Moten talks about study, you know, a commitment to the idea that study is what we do together, having, having not really taken seriously that space, having not taken seriously what comes before and still feeling the entitlement to hold forth as though it's somehow responsive to the thing that you haven't attended to. And in some way it feels like the gap between reading and expression. And again, I'm, I'm using these the way that you were not, not in the sense of spending time with a written text, but in the sense of taking seriously the world that you live in and expression as, as the forms of your living that are responsive to the world that we live in. The, the gap between those feels in so many ways like the form of, of whiteness actually. And that understanding that gap as sort of benign or meaningless and just an annoyance is actually an incredibly dangerous thing that, that that kind of benefit of the doubt that has other people having to consistently respond to it or, or ask the question of whether or not it was even harmful um, and the kind of work and psychic toll that goes into negotiating that space it feels, it feels responsible for the maintenance of so much of what is. I think the thing about, about this idea of meaning well is that it asks, it asks one person to be able to, or one, one configuration of people to be able to absorb the carelessness of another. And so I think to take seriously the directions of who has to absorb that carelessness and who has to, and who is permitted to exist that carelessly in the world really shows us something about how things are set up. And 
that those really aren't that those really aren't benign interactions. Well, well, let's talk about Amira um, since we're talking now about the ordinary everyday things that maintain the status quo, um, and Amira is this disruptive element in in civil service. It's fitting that the On the Nose podcast titled their episode, Talking to You, The Scream Clarifies and Elsewhere, which references the first poem we talked about today, because Amira feels like an embodiment of an elsewhere and an otherwise. She's a fugitive voice that is running down the margins of the book in grayscale, who feels both like the present absence at the heart of the book, to borrow Dora Salcedo's language, and seems to be outside of the book also, as much as the civil servants in the book are trying to sort of pin her down. Uh, For instance, in one of your lecture poems, Lecture on Confessional Poetry, it has the line, to confess is to offer the territory of your elsewhere to the dictator's compass. And Amir's own language, in contrast, at one point says, what dazzling otherwise do I name when I address you? So in a way, she seems outside of language too, or on its outer limits. She even unpins names from their things at one point. I thought a little of Yasmin and Dion Brand's ossuaries, who's also a fugitive and unpinned. And so I wasn't surprised that for your launch event for this book, that you opened it with a reading from Ossuaries. But but talk to us about Amira. Her presence absence feels really vital to this collection, which I think otherwise could risk feeling very well built, but instead feels uh, in flux and in motion. I think all of the enclosures that structure our social space as it is, and the fact that we clearly need some kind of totalizing catalytic action that I think is often called revolution in order to move us from this world to a different kind of world can mean that that action is the sort of narrative climax really is kind of where the story can end. But it felt important to me to signpost that there's something on the other side and there's something on the other side that's not wholly knowable from where we stand, but that that's, we have glimpses of in the world that exists as it exists now. But I think going back to the kind of unnamed prologue poems, you know, that, that end, you know, you are responsible for Amira. She's in your hands now borrowing from Toni Morrison's Nobel lecture, um, where she she kind of makes that uh, proclamation really about language itself by way of an image of a bird, but um, still. And, and really to think about what does it mean to move toward, I mean, I guess really in some ways, it's just what, what Natalie Diaz says, you know, why, why not? I, I'm probably misquoting a little bit, but why not now move toward what I love? You know, why why not move toward the possibility of a different kind of relation? Um, and so, so I think the she's she's not wholly visible, but the 
proximity to her is really up to the reader. It really is, there are ways of engaging with that language that I think put you closer or, or further away from her. Um, and so that kind of calibration felt important. And as you're saying, it felt important to making the book feel porous to the world because I didn't want it to be a kind of like knowable community as Raymond Williams talks about the novel. You know, I really wanted it to be actually a question of what does it mean to be in an unknowable community? What does it mean to fight for something whose forms we can never really wholly know, which describes the future, but it also describes our relationships to each other. Well, I really loved in the Jewish Currents episode with you, you responding to Nathan, calling the collection melancholy by saying that you liked that framing because Freud characterized melancholy as an unhealthy response to not being able to assimilate grief. And you wanted to unpack the political possibilities of what it would mean to refuse to assimilate grief. And somehow I connect this to Amira. I don't know if you would, but um, that Amira feels like an embodiment of a, a refusal to assimilate and a refusal to assimilate grief. I, I hadn't really thought about it in that way before, but now it now it's making me think again about the cover and the way that we were kind of talking about the the vexed temporality of grief that in fact and maybe this is partly because I'm sitting with customs right now so Mashri's collection so closely but but the forms of the future that I hope I hope to bring a, you know I hope to be a part of bringing about have everything to do with the foreclosures of the past, you know, that, that there's always a kind of counterfactual element against which to calibrate what, what we hope to become. But I think there's no way to imagine that without taking seriously that those losses persist and that those losses will persist in the future, even if they're not being renewed under the same conditions, that what's happened continues to happen in various forms because the losses continue to mutate. Mm. I wondered if it was accidental or intentional that Amira's name doesn't signify a, a stable ethnic or national identity, that it, it could be Hebrew, it could be Arabic, it could even be Hindi. Um, t- talk to us about the, the process of choosing the name of Amira, which in a way is the, uh, the, the most important name to choose and the only person who has a name in this book that isn't a function I think I I think it goes back a little bit to what I was talking about earlier in terms of thinking about these kind of nodes of I don't know these kind of currents around which my life or these kind of currents by which my life feels directed um which which could not come only through Judaism. That's just how they happen to have come to me. Um, But they might come in a form that would be indistinguishable, actually, to someone else. So it did feel important to me to think about a name that, I don't know, maybe we can talk a little bit about like diaspora, but I, I feel a little bit of a allergy is too strong, but a little bit of a resistance to that framework and and thinking a little bit instead about the kind of framework of multi-rootedness, which is more of a Mizrahi 
um, framework, but the idea that you know there's not there's not one origin from which everything else was kind of cast out, but there are a whole host of spaces that roots are are grown and where relationships are cultivated. And so it felt important to me that her name has multiple roots that other people may enter differently and whose significations may therefore be very different. So for me, for me, it felt it, it comes from the Hebrew and my own knowing. And so I, I loved that it kind of means like a, a treetop, which made me think of the Kabbalistic sense of, you know, the tree of life and where, and Salam's breath turn, this kind of sense of where knowledge becomes incompatible with human life, you know, the very, the very pinnacle of something that we can only hope to move toward. It's a kind of horizon that, that can never be fully embodied, but then also means saying, you know, that it's a, a deeply embodied way of trying to reach toward another with language that requires the body, that requires imagining another body on the other side. So that that's my origin, but I hope others have others. Yeah, I love that. Um, well, speaking of the notion of elsewhere and otherwise, you curated an incredible series at Jewish Currents that was a really amazing rereading of Toni Morrison's only short story, the one where she does not signal which of the two girls is black and which is white, though we know that one is one and one is the other, or that rather the reader finds themselves presuming one or the other at various moments based on details in the text, but it's never clear. Everyone from Passed Between the Covers guest, Palestinian novelist Adonia Shibley, wrote about the story. Dion Brand wrote about the story. And your writing about it is called Reading Otherwise on Kinship, Racial Pedagogy, and Reading as Revision. So, reading from your essay, you say, Inspectors of the Atlantic, Ian Baucom, posits the novel as the genre that conditioned thought in line with the speculative finance system that underwrote the transatlantic slave trade. The novel, Baucom explains, honed the idea of types that tethered the present to a fixed set of futures. If a person is X, then they will be Y, a mode of thinking required for the brutal calculations by which a person, kidnapped from their home, could be sold as a commodity in a place far away. The reading practice that corresponds to types is skimming, a process of extraction carried out in accordance with prefigured ideas about what one will find, and then fastening those findings to a limited set of meanings. Or as Baucom puts it, the novel altered the knowable by indexing it to the imaginable. This story, which Morrison called an experiment, exposes the extractive practice of skimming, what often passes for ordinary reading, as itself a set of brutal experiments, racial propositions, and hypotheses that constrict meaning to marshal the present toward a fixed future. And then I love that you you bring in the Talmud here, um, which I also think of with Amira because the way the mirror running down the margins of your book makes me think of the way the Talmud 
is text surrounding text from different eras, text running down the margins around other texts. Um, and you say, the Talmud is a living record of reading. It is also a theory of reading. To read is to revise. Texts are sites of return, not because their certainty calcifies ways to be, but because their uncertainty is infinite. And to commune with that uncertainty is to enlarge the possibilities of becoming. In the world of modern finance capital, the future is speculative. When we read the Talmud, we recall that the past is speculative. When we skim, we extract meaning. When we read, we endow meaning. That is the logic of interpretation. In Hebrew, teacher and parent share a root. Put differently, they are split at the root. In the absence of the mothers as the primary instructors of sociality, a space for mothering is opened up. And one answer to that space is readership. Bound by disagreement as much as consensus, in the kinship readership extends, likeness is not the prerequisite for belonging. I bring the Talmud to this reading not because it belongs here, but because it is what I have to bring. The great possibility in tradition is not the smooth fiction of continuity, but the jagged edge of unfinishedness, the infinite invitation to reread and thus revise a way out from the real of the now. What otherwise might we mean for each other? I read this mostly so we can all hear it, but because it's so amazing. But I also think of your, your class, a six-week class, The Art of Attention, where week five is imagining otherwise. And I wondered, is, is, this part, is this part of imagining otherwise by learning to read otherwise, by learning to read in a non-extractive way, as you describe here? Is that, how, is that a part of the process of imagining otherwise? I think it, I think it is. And I think... I'm thinking about Javis again. I'm not sure if this will get us anywhere, but it's it's just kind of what's coming to mind is, you know, he says he says the word is on the side of death. The the there's this idea that the blank field of the page and the kind of God really that it stands for, the nothingness that it stands for, is disrupted by the mark is is disrupted by language, which you know you talked about this really beautifully in your conversation with. Rosemary Waldrop when you know she talked I think she used the example of a bird but the idea that you you write bird because the bird isn't there and it's actually a really kind of cruel consolidation of everything that a bird is to have this little word that stands in for it um but I think what gives me I don't know hope I actually hope I'll say um is that there's the possibility of then re-enlivening that by encountering it as a reader, by bringing all of these other meanings, by fleshing the word with the imagination and with the forms of living that the imagination makes possible or believable or fortifies us to move into. To me, it is always this kind of encounter with death, encounter with loss that makes life precious, but that also is a kind of disruption of the fullness of living that the reader then moves in to to meet the word and to bring it back into the world so 
I, I really love this idea of extractive reading and skimming and this other notion of, of attending to text as a connection to attending to the world. And maybe in that spirit, could, could we hear death revises badly, which I do think attends to the poor way we read our own histories as we live them. Death revises badly. In the old dictator's obituary, a charming anecdote. When the old dictator was a boy, his father saved his wages for a month to buy his son a watch. The boy, in turn, turned back the watch's hands every day for a month so his father would not lose time on his account. Remember, before he was the old dictator, he was a baby babbling. Now he speaks three languages, thanks to his time in the army. After genocide, he took up painting. His paintings manifest a man grappling, the curator attests, by seven. When the dictator scorned the old dictator, the townspeople awarded the old dictator a new title, empathetic. Look at that soft power a townswoman cooed bruised like peaches from the half-off bin. The townspeople collected their best language to offer the empathetic dictator. The empathetic dictator was not home. He had gone to play golf with the dictator. The townspeople left their gift on his stoop. When the empathetic dictator returned, he adorned himself with the townspeople's best language. He commissioned a photo which he had made into Christmas cards. The townspeople displayed the cards on their mantelpieces. One day, the photo finds the homepage. The empathetic dictator has died, the newspaper reports. The townspeople are sad. The townspeople read of their sadness on tiny screens. How tender the old rule appears when you hold it up to the present, like a cashier turning a $100 bill toward the light, squinting, proclaiming it real. Listening to Claire Schwartz read from Civil Service, it, it feels like this poem, Death Revises Badly, is one place in the book where the types don't remain types, where, we, where real people are poking through the figures um, the old dictator who now paints, who suddenly we now look back to with fondness, forgetting all of his monstrosities, given how terrible the current dictator is. Even though this, I think, could apply to many past leaders, I feel like I'm invited to see George W. Bush here. And I, I think of your review of his book of paintings that you call Portrait of Empire, with the subtitle George W. Bush's recent book of paintings betrays liberal empire's role not as fascism's alternative but as its co-conspirator an essay that is nonpartisan in its disdain for american liberalism where you also say of biden biden who months into a global uprising against the brutality that is policing suggested that instead of aiming to kill targeted people cops should shoot them in the leg a pithy expression of liberalism. 
the warped lens through which Biden's presidency appears as anything other than an extension of the ongoing catastrophe of U.S. empire is the result of a long history of nationalist distortion in which carcerality masquerades as care, civility as justice. But you go on to talk about the swift and substantial rehabilitation of George Bush's image now that Trump has arrived. Uh, no longer the founder of ICE, the torturer-in-chief or the invader of Iraq, but rather the guy who, as you mentioned, was the recipient of a warm hug from Michelle Obama at the opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. He was an affable friend of Ellen DeGeneres and an amateur painter. And your, your description of his book says, presenting images of diverse immigrants united only by their gratitude to the United States, out of many one, creates a composite sketch of a quote-unquote good immigrant to authorize the very imperial aggressions which, by creating conditions of global unsafety, coerce people to leave their homes. Under the guise of hospitality, the book patrols the always unevenly porous border of the nation that has little relationship to its geographic perimeter, where dominant ideas of what good and bad look like are reproduced, where routes of appeal are fortified, and the addressee is always the imperial center. This feels like it could be a description of what your civil servants are trying to create in your book, in my opinion, that Amira is actively trying to subvert in your book, that there is an imagination battle happening in your book, but I wondered, am I reading too much of real history into this poem, the real way we are reading our histories? Um, is it wrong to have have this real figure poking through this this uh, this more vague figure that um, that we find mostly throughout the book? No, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's actually very much the point. And you know, you mentioned that this is the one kind of poem oriented around these figures where something like real people or, or people who are a little bit more can't be only figured in terms of these types are poking through. And it felt important to me to begin the book with that sense that there's a, there's something that's being consolidated through these types that is porous to another kind of way of being. And it's obviously no coincidence that, you know, Bush is legible here, but I think he's, he's not the only person who's legible in these kinds of um, imperial revisions, really. And the fact that these types really are configurations of power that map on to the world as we've known it and may or may not map onto the world as we continue to know it is really the open question that the book kind of sits inside. What you relate in one of your pieces about being eight years old when a Holocaust survivor came to your Hebrew school to tell his story, a story that you loved to tell yourself for a really long time, that his family was sent to Auschwitz where they were murdered but an SS officer took note of this survivor when he was a boy, took note of his painting skills. 
and kept him alive as a person to paint portrait for him. At that time, this story was a powerful example to you of the real manifestation of art's vitality and power. But later you began to see it differently, that the capacity for beauty is not the capacity for good. Um, this makes me think of your poem, Minuet, which I think for a large part is one of the more beautiful poems, but then sort of <laughs> undercuts itself in a way, uh, or undercuts the... the um, the truth effect of beauty, maybe it would be one way to say it. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about what I just said, but then I was thinking after you do, if we could go out with a reading of Minuet. Well, Minuet in particular, I, I don't know that I was thinking of this at the time, but when I read it now, I think of Salon and Totus Fuga and, you know, the way that that poem, which is really so frontally about the death camps, was taken up as a poem of reconciliation, was extracted of its content and sort of taught for its form in German schools as the German state was kind of reconstituting its own fascisms after World War II, as Nazis were being really reinstated in positions of civil service. And, you know, after that really horrendous misreading by agents of the German state, Salon said, you know, he didn't want to musicalize in that way anymore. And he, he turned away from that kind of poetics. And I wanted to think about the dangers of music to lull us into forms and contents. I don't mean to, you know, distinguish in that way exactly, but really into meanings that we may not be fully awake to, you know, I think it's a very common thing to be singing along to a song without fully internalizing its lyrics. But I think there's a way that its meanings still enter you and, and the music can be kind of a lubrication for meanings that you may not otherwise want to take in or otherwise want to be reproducing to enter. So I was trying to hold that, but I can, I can read. Minuet. It is snowing, it was snowing, it is snowing still. The snow stills the day's little dramas, the snow covers lightly, is light. The days are little, largely night, where were dramas of light, now only snow. Out there, a room we are all inside, stilled the now presses, blanketing us like snow. The room is a past. It contains only a blanket. The now is a song passing like light. The room was a world. You were once contained singing. When the room warms, will you still sing the snow? The world's was, once is, will be our light and you passing through lightly like snow. It was not warm. It is days past night. The dictator signs the form and a woman is disappeared into the past. Thank you for being on the show today, Claire. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's long been a dream to talk with you. So this is a very nice excuse. We've been talking today to Claire Schwartz, the author of the debut poetry collection, Civil Service from Grey Wolf. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. More of Claire Schwartz's work can be found at clairschwartz.net. For the bonus audio archive, Claire contributes a reading in both French and English of Edmond Jabez. This joins Jen Bourbon reading from and under the influence of Paul Salon, long-form interviews with many translators, and much more. Claire also offers a poetry or writing consultation slash conversation. There's a ton of other things available, including having books handpicked by me and sent to you, uh, the new Jewish Currents bundle, becoming an early reader for Tin House. But maybe you just simply find these conversations substantive, meaningful, even life-affirming. If so, if, if you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the community of Between the Covers listener supporters who are ensuring the future of in-depth conversations like these. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Alice Evelyn Yang in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Emory Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Emory Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.